Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. How many of you are kind of stubborn by nature? How about this? How many of you know that your wife or your husband or uh, parents or kids might say that you're kind of stubborn? I see some knowing looks between families here. Well, last week we looked at how Amos was declaring coming judgment not only on the enemy nations surrounding Israel and Judah, uh, which they were glad would happen, but, but they were not happy about that that judgment was also coming for them. And they actually didn't want to believe it was really true. They may have thought that Amos declaring coming judgment on them uh, was not deserved in comparison to those other nations whom they considered far worse. And, and they may have even thought that God would be awfully hasty to bring judgment on them. But as we look at chapter 4 of, of Amos today, we, we see that God was not hasty at all in declaring coming judgment on Israel and Judah. and uh, He had been quite patient with them, giving them many chances to turn to him, uh, but they were just stubborn. And so I want to talk to today, then, to people that are stubborn. And if you don't consider yourself to be one of those people, um, maybe you could just stay anyway for a little while. Think about uh, all those other stubborn people around you. And maybe in the process, uh, some of this you may come to the conclusion applies even to you. The basis of my conclusion regarding the stubbornness of God's people in the time of Amos is, is as we look in chapter 4 here, we see this repeated phrase that you hear as we read this text, Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. It comes up five times in this chapter. I invite you to stand in reverence to God's word as we read. We'll be reading that, the whole chapter there, verses 1 through 13. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who exploit the poor and oppress the needy and say to their husbands, Bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, for behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go out through the holes in the walls, one in front of the other, and you will be hurled to harm and declares the Lord. Enter Bethel and do, do wrong, and Gilgal, multiply wrongdoing, and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes every three days. And offer a thanksgiving offering also for that which is leavened, and proclaim voluntary offerings. Make them known, for so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord God. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all of your cities, and lack of bread in all of your places, and yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest, and then I would send rain on one city, but not on another city, um, one part would be rained on, while the other part not rained on would dry up. And so the people of two and three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. 
I struck you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards and fig trees and olive trees, and yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you, as in Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword, along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a dog, or like a log snatched from a fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, so I will do to you, Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates wind and declares to a person what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads in the high places of the earth, Lord God of armies is his name. Let us pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the prophet Amos and the things that he spoke to your people back then. And Lord, we thank you that that is applicable to us in this nation and in this church even today. And we pray that you'd speak to each of our hearts and that that, uh, that repeated phrase would ring in our ears and would draw us to humble ourselves before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Stubbornness. Growing up on a farm, I, I have seen it many times in animals. Cattle not wanting to be herded. Heifers not wanting to go into the right stall or, or to be milked. Horses not cooperating with their owners. I, I remember one time when our family was living um, in this acreage just outside of Minot, and uh, there were houses all along this road here, and, and one of our neighbors, uh, two handsome stallions, saw the gate left open and went for it and ran throughout our neighborhood. And it seemed like about half the neighborhood uh, got involved in, in uh, chasing them down and, and rounding them up and getting them back in. At one point, they galloped right through our backyard. And uh, it seems, though, that those horses knew exactly where they were supposed to go because they eventually trotted right on in through the gate. But for a while, they didn't want to do so. Are we humans a bit like that? Knowing the rules of our creator and master, but wanting to do our own thing instead. You who are parents know that stubbornness starts young. I saw it in, in my year-and-a-half-year-old uh, twin grandkids uh, when they came and stayed at our house here around Christmas. We are, by nature, sinful. And even when we become Christians and, and we receive a new nature, we're still stuck with that old nature, and it is a stubborn one. And, and so God, then, has, who has all power and, and has all things at his disposal, is in the business uh, of doing whatever it takes to get people to turn from the stubborn, selfish ways and plans for their own lives to humbling themselves and turning to their creator and his ways. And his plans for them, which are really far superior than their own ways, and, and far better for the rest of the people they live with. God's desire is that the crown of his creation, humankind, walk in a relationship with him in, his, in this life, and, and that they spend eternity in heaven with him as well. But before that's possible, there needs to be a change of heart. And, and so what was the deal? with Israel and, and Judah back in Amos' day. How were they being stubborn? 
Why was God upset with his chosen people and planning to bring judgment on them? As we glance back a little bit in chapter 3 there and and then the beginning of chapter 4, it points out some of those things. And one commentary that I looked at summed up the first one this way. said there was real lack of grace in their relationships and social concerns. There was kind of a, a class system type of mentality that was going on among his people. And Amos calls him out on it, and he does so rather bluntly. His farm background is kind of coming out here as you see it. He calls some of the wealthy, haughty women of the area, you cows of Bashan. You who oppress the poor and crush the needy and who say to your husbands, bring me another drink, you are like the fat cows in this region, focused all on self. And he says, your time is coming. When you will be greatly humbled and an enemy nation um, takes you away with meat hooks or fish hooks and you won't be so uppity then. Did you notice how Amon began verse 2 though? He says this, The Lord has sworn by his holiness that he will deal with you this way. God in his holiness cannot allow his people to be arrogant and looking down on other folks around them. What does he tell us? For instance, in 1 Peter chapter 5, there it says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Isn't this a huge part of the problem in Washington, D.C. today? Pride on both sides of the political spectrum, pushing their own agenda, and out to to, uh, really humiliate the other side. And oh, there are reasons for the views on each side, and and there are people with strong convictions about what they believe, and and we all probably have our own views regarding some of that, and what's right and wrong, and why we think so. But you know, we are at an absolute impasse to help our society if we get to where we are just looking down on and, and even despising folks who see things very different than we do. A political leader I know of, and and I'm not going to reveal who it is or which party because it will only distract from this quote, but said this, and I think it sums it up well, uh, uh, America is addicted to being offended. Isn't that true? Do we not need to lighten up a bit and quit taking ourselves so seriously and, and humble ourselves and listen to each other? without being so determined to win some argument. And maybe that's true even here, uh, among uh, our parishioners who disagree on some things, whether that be political views or, or the color of the carpet or what kind of light bulbs we should be using. Now why was God upset with his chosen people and planning to bring judgment upon them? Part of it was this. There was this lack of grace in their relationships and social concerns. Secondly, there was a a disappearance of the spiritual dimension from their personal lives. They they were so wrapped up in the material things of this life and what they could accumulate for themselves that they lost sight of that personal relationship with their creator God that he intended for them to have. I have a nephew who uh, went to school for photography. And he's trying to get a business started uh, in selling outdoor and nature photos, and it's a challenge. And recently he was back in our home area 
uh, and spending some days outdoors that he loves there and, and trying to capture some wildlife scenes and really get nothing. And, and he posted on his blog about this and, and how it, it dawned on him as he was sitting out there that there were wonders of God's creation all around him, but he was overlooking them in his pursuit of that perfect picture of the big buck. Is it possible that some of us are also going through our daily lives a bit like that, so occupied with our agendas that we are overlooking or even ignoring our own relationship with God, not noticing all of the little blessings that he gives us in our daily life? Don't overlook the value, for instance, of those daily quiet times with the Lord and the treasures that he has for you right here in his word in those times of talking to him in prayer. A third reason that Amos says here for God's coming judgment on his people was this, religious compromise was going on. There, fake worship, empty sacrifices and offerings. Look at verse 4 there. He says, enter Bethel and do wrong, and Gilgal multiply wrongdoing. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes every three days and offer a thanksgiving offering also from that which is leavened and proclaim voluntary offerings and make that known. So you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord. What was going on? There was an outward display of religion so that they'd look good to people around them, but no true worship of God going on in their hearts. And God is not pleased with us just going through the motions of churchianity. He wants our hearts. Humble hearts that remember our own sinfulness and the amazing grace and forgiveness that he's given us in Jesus Christ. Like cattle, we so easily stray from home and so God sometimes has to do some things to draw us back and and as we look on in this text, we see that. What, what does God do to get people to return to him? There are a few things listed here. First of all, in verse 6, hunger and shortage of essentials. You see that it talks about cleanness of teeth. And, and he's not talking about a visit to the dental hygienist here. Okay, he, He's speaking of clean teeth being the result of a food shortage, not even having bread to eat. God's desire was that they would recognize their dependence on him for all things, and they would pray to him for help. But the end of verse 6 makes it clear. They had not. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Now maybe you or somebody that you know is going through a time of shortage of the very basics in their life. Can it be that God is trying to get theirs or your attention even through that so that hearts would turn to him? Every once in a while, we have somebody stopping at our church uh, looking for money for gas or food or something, and we try to meet those pressing needs. We're thankful to have a, a Samaritan fund for that. And, um, but we always want to remember that they have a greater need than that, and that is for our relationship with God, their Creator, and Jesus, their Savior, because God uses those times of shortage to soften hearts to Him, and our hope is that we can give them literature or share with them or even pray with them even to help them focus on the Lord. You know, if economic times get hard for us in the days ahead, might it be that God wants to use that to get people to turn to him? What else does God use to do that? Well, verses 7 and 8 talk about drought and rain. 
God sent on Israel and Judah times of drought and famine, times of scorching heat that withered the crops down to nothing. You know, personally, I think that God has been using this heat and drought tactic with that purpose of getting the attention of the folks in California for years. But he could choose to do the same right here in the Red River Valley anytime as well. Verse 7 reminds us that sometimes God does something very interesting. He, he brings relief from drought in one city and not in another that's nearby. And he's able to do that too. And as I think about that, it's interesting to me then that God uses both the hard times of drought and the good times of rain to turn hearts to him. There, there's a verse in the Bible that says this. It says that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. And you know, sometimes it's seeing how good God has been to us that just can overwhelm us as we realize that we are getting so much better than we deserve. Think of a lady who started to come to our church in Minot, for which that was the case. Um, she and her husband had been married for years and they were unable to have a child. And they really had, for those years of their marriage, no time for church or religion, even though they had grown up in the church. She hit 40, and she began to think she was never going to be able to have a child. And then, out of the blue, she ended up pregnant. And when little Alan came into the world, her life changed. And she just couldn't get over it. God's goodness to her, in spite of her own stubbornness. And uh, one of her parishioners had invited her to church, and she came. And, and she's been a part of that congregation, and so has her son ever since. Has God been extra good to you in your life, maybe lately? Given you better than you deserve? Won't you let him use that to move your heart to a closer walk with him? You know, I find in my own life that there are times, there are areas of stubbornness in my heart. And as I've looked to God's awesome blessing to me and my family and all that he's given us, I, I found God has used that to soften my heart uh, to him and draw him closer, or draw me closer to him. And there are other times uh, he sends some trials, and that too is with the purpose of drawing me to not think I'm so self-sufficient and to learn to lean on and trust in him. There's another thing that God sometimes uses to turn hearts to him. Uh, as you look at verse 9 and 10 here, thinking of farmers now, that's disease and pests. He says, I struck you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees. Doesn't it seem like there's even more crop diseases out there than there used to be? Midge and scab and mildew, and there are newer strains I don't know the names of, and, and there are pests that come along as well. And a farmer can look at their crop and think, this looks like it's going to be a wonderful crop, um, just the right amount of rain and sunshine is growing great and then have it really destroyed by disease or, or by pests. Well, God sent some of that on Israel and Judah and, and yet the verse 9 makes it clear. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Verse 10, he says, I sent a plague among you as, as in Egypt. You catch that? God sends plagues. And so doesn't that include this coronavirus too? Whether we look on it as God sending it or allowing it, isn't this too in his hands? And shouldn't we then be imploring him to end it rather than thinking just 
Human scientists and governments can make it all go away. We can think we have this one solved and another plague can come our way. How sad that it seems that God has to take more and more drastic measures to get people's attention. Look at verses 10 and 11. What does he use? The death of those that you love. Sometimes we see that happen. That the death of somebody we love brings a person around. I think of a man I knew of who uh, shared openly about this in his life. Lost his son to death in a school bus accident years ago and how that turned his whole family to the Lord. Made him a passionate evangelist because of the concern for the eternal destiny of souls around him. Well, Amos speaks for God here in verse 10 of the deaths of many of their young men in war, and yet they did not return to him. And I believe that in times of war, God uses the deaths of young servicemen to bring people to turn to him. I had the awesome privilege and responsibility of preaching the word back in Northville, Minnesota about 17 years ago for a funeral of one of my confirmation students who had then gone on to serve as a sergeant in, in Iraq. And he was one of the first soldiers from Minnesota to die in Iraq. And there were hundreds of people at that funeral at the school, including Governor Palenti and, and many military personnel. And I prayed that as they heard the word that day, some hearts would be turned to the Lord. Verse 11 here. He says, I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a log snatched from the fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. You see, besides the deaths of some that we love, sometimes God uses near-death experiences. Tragic things happening around us and maybe, yeah, even almost us. I had a car accident uh, when I lived in Minot. Busy intersection there on Highway 2. I think they've put up a stoplight there now. It's a good idea. Anyway, in my eagerness to get across that intersection one day, I slammed into a car I didn't even see. It hit hard, and, and there was an explosion, and then everything went white. And for a moment, I thought to myself, is this it? Has my time come to leave this earth? If so, I guess white is good, right? And then I smelled kind of a sulfur-like smell, and I thought, well, that's not good. <laughs> and then I realized it was really this white in front of my face and the explosion and the smell and all that was connected to that airbag that had blown up right in my face. And really, I was pretty much fine, except for definitely some injured pride and a surface injury to my chin from the airbag. Um, it didn't end up being so serious. Uh, for me, my car, that was a different story. But it wasn't really a near-death experience, but it, it stunned me. It reminded me of how quickly things can happen. How about you? Have you had a close call sometime and you realized that you were this close to being ushered into eternity? Why do you think God spared you? Is it not to turn your heart to him if you didn't know him? And if you already know the Lord, to re be reminded of your purpose in life, to be serving him. We never know when our time will come. May it not be the case for any of us that God would say this repeated phrase, and yet you have not returned to me. 
In verse 12, he also says to his people, Therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, prepare to meet your God. Prepare for that ultimate encounter with your creator God. And through Amos, then, he was telling the people of Israel and Judah to prepare to be overrun as a nation by the enemy and killed or taken off into exile. And Amos then called them to realize who they were dealing with. It's the one that was in charge of all things. And we see that in the last couple of verses here. We see who God is and what he oversees. We're reminded he's the creator of the mountains and the wind. Um, he says, yeah, think of the awesome mountains that you've seen, like, like I saw out in Arizona just a week ago. Absolutely magnificent uh, I never get tired of looking at those. Well, God is so powerful to make them and also carve out that Grand Canyon. He's the one that's in charge of the wind, that invisible power that blows so strongly out here in the valley. We reminded of that this last week. Verse 13, it tells us that he knows the thoughts of man. He declares to man what are his thoughts. He's in charge of day and night. He makes the dawn turn into darkness each and every day. That consistent pattern happens, including those awesome sunrises and sunsets we've been seeing lately. He's in charge of all of that. He treads on the high places of the earth. His name is the Lord of hosts. He's in charge of the angels and the spirit world as well. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel, the all-powerful one, Amos says. As we close today, how about you? Are you ready to meet your maker? If you died tonight and you were to stand before God and he was to say to you, well, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Maybe you are one who knows what you could say because you are a believer in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've confessed your sins to him and you've asked him to forgive you and you are trusting that his death on the cross covers all of your sins. But as you look at your life today, you're still aware that you're being stubborn in some area of your life. Today, you're seeing something. You're seeing that needs to change. And you know that the Lord has been speaking to you about that and, and bringing various things into your life even to get you to turn, but maybe you've been resisting. Well, won't you quit being stubborn? Come to him with that area too and surrender afresh your heart to him and, and to his plans for your life. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you know everything about us. You, you know the thoughts of our hearts, you tell us here. And you know, Lord, the ways in which we are stubborn. You know if that, that has been in our relationships with each other or people around us. You know if that's been in our personal walk with you. Or, Lord, if it's uh, been in uh, what we're doing here when we come for worship. Lord, you want our hearts. And uh, we pray that you would draw us to yourself. And that as we think on our own lives, Lord, you'd remind us you've brought various things into our lives in order to get us to turn to you or, or to humble ourselves about those areas of life that we are stubborn about. Our Lord, pray that that would happen. And I just thank you that in Jesus there is full forgiveness of sin when we humble ourselves before you and admit it. And that you are able to change our hearts and to work new things within us. And pray for that, Lord. And I, I pray for stubborn people in high places in our land. 
that they would humble themselves and admit their sins and turn to Jesus too. And Lord, that you would have your way in this nation. I pray that America would again admit that we are one nation under God. And Lord, that that would take place in our hearts, that we would be living our lives under you. But I pray, Lord, that you would, even as this transition of power happens in our land, that you would also somehow have hearts humble before each other and before you ultimately. And Lord, that there would be a recognizing of who you are and a turning to you. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.